Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tune in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews from shows that deserve your attention. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode seven for July of 2016. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be taking a look at the importance of conventions, as well as a couple of shows that we've both been watching this summer, and we'll let you know what those are as the podcast progresses. But we'll go ahead and let you know that we will be sharing an interview from Joseph Malazzi from Dark Matter. He's the showrunner for that show. So excited to share that one with you. But yeah, like you said, we're talking about the importance of conventions. And it's interesting because as we changed the format last month to bring the discussion topic up front, I noticed that we're kind of sticking to topics about fandom as well, although that won't always be the case. That does seem to be great fodder for discussion, just talking about how fandoms are affected by this or that. Yeah, and the show that I'm going to be talking about tonight is one of those that unexpectedly got canceled at the end. And I think it's because of the easy access that fandom has these days that really makes it as important as it is. Yeah, not only on social media, but at the conventions themselves where they can have some personal interaction with their favorite celebrities. And it's great because I know that you and I are not huge attendees. I do go to Dragon Con every year, but that's only been in the last few years. And you haven't been to conventions yet, but we see the effects they have, especially when huge news comes out of them, as is known to happen with especially San Diego Comic-Con, the mecca of all conventions. Well, and I guess there is that desire to be first. And it's one of those things that you you would think as a journalist uh, and having been trained in that regard and, and all of that, you'd think that the desire to be first would be important to me, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to be on the cutting edge and getting the news straight from the horse's mouth. You're, you're more than happy to see it on Nerd HQ on YouTube. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there is a great service that conventions provide, as I can attest to, and, and a lot of that has to do with the personal contact. But before we get too far into it, for those who need to avoid spoilers by skipping certain segments, here are the time codes for today's topics. The Importance of Conventions 308 Penny Dreadful 2801 Killjoys 3614 Interview Segment 4436 But let's go first through what it provides for the fans that attend the conventions because of course it is a chance for fans to meet the actors and writers and showrunners beyond whatever financial comings and goings might be happening. Right now already 
you probably have the sense that Mike and I are on somewhat opposite ends of the spectrum here as far as conventions go. Mike was kind. He said that he goes to some and he <laughs> goes to Dragon Con every year. I've never been to a convention. I can't ever see me going to a convention. <laughs> Maybe one of the local ones like Shore Leave or, or Farpoint or something. Or Farpoint. But even that. But as you said, it's a chance to meet the actors, the writers, the showrunners. But then from my perspective, what does meeting them really mean? Well, and it varies from convention to convention. Are you moving up in the line and eventually making it to the front and just getting a couple of words while they scrawl their name on a 8 by 10 Or are you actually having a conversation with them in passing and maybe not even buying anything? Because I do get the sense that for different conventions, there is a different amount of personal contact that you're allowed to have. Right. Now we're going to talk about San Diego Comic-Con, which is obviously the big daddy of them all. But obviously, Atlanta's Dragon Con has become pretty huge in its own right. And some might say that Dragon Con has become the con of the East Coast. Right. Or maybe not even of the East Coast, but just a distinction between industry-run conventions as opposed to fan-run conventions, completely volunteer. But I think the the main selling point that DragonCon has, and we'll get into more detail in a bit, but what's important to me as a fan is being able to have interaction where you can just walk up to someone whose work you admire and tell them that you admire their work and then move on, not necessarily having purchased anything or anything like that. It just was someone expressing appreciation for someone else's work. And that's something that you can do at Dragon Con that I wasn't able to do, for example, at Fan Expo in Toronto. You only could come up to talk to the people if you were buying something or if you were getting an autograph. So I think that's an important distinction. But that's what some people are there for, to get those autographs, to purchase show-related items, and to maybe even get a photo op with that celebrity. Or people that go to conventions that don't even care if they see zero celebrities. Right. And we will see a lot of Facebook posted photos of people with their celebrity of choice. Now, my wife asked me an interesting question that I really didn't have an answer to when I was explaining to her what we were going to talk about tonight regarding autographs. Do people give autographs out for free anymore? Nope. Okay. (laughs) In fact, a lot of the folks that are invited to conventions and make no mistake, They must be invited. They are not making the request to be at the convention in most cases, although they might reach out to someone. But a lot of times they have to be invited. And the way they make the money is not through any kind of booking fee, although, you know, the William Shatners and the Patrick Stewart's certainly do have booking fees. But most of the sci-fi channel, for example, celebrities only make money by virtue of photo ops and autographs, which they sell at their table. And, and occasionally you'll, you can take a picture with your phone for a fee as well. But yeah, those are ways that they make the appearance worthwhile to them financially, as well as being able to interact with their fans. Right. And I think having done podcasting for about four years now, these kinds of shows, I think we start to realize that outside of the show's main star or two, these actors aren't making a ton of money, so it's a great opportunity for them to earn a living. And, and like you said, a lot of us are happy to pay it, happy to be given that opportunity. Now, obviously, it's a chance to meet other fans, many of whom you may already know 
online and it gives you an opportunity. And I know this was uh, something you've experienced a number of times. You get to meet them in person. Oh, yeah. And what a great opportunity that is, you know, disregarding the celebrities for a moment, being able to meet someone that you only knew online, usually through social media, especially during live tweets. That's great. I mean, you have something in common from the very start. And a lot of times these are folks that maybe aren't extroverted in their real life and get a chance to be part of something and feel like they're not just that weird person that's obsessed with the TV show. Now they're amongst others of their kind. <laughs> other weird people that are obsessed with the TV show. That's right. Right. And also a chance to meet other podcasters, perhaps that you've worked with, perhaps that you've listened to. And, and you know, certainly that's cool. Oh, yeah. Fandoms can be everywhere from, you know, fans on Twitter to podcasters to bloggers to just about anybody who's associated with the television shows. And, and of course, you, you and I talk about sci-fi TV, and certainly it's true for movies and other th- things as well. I mean, certainly authors and comic book artists and things like that are at these conventions as well. But one thing that I noticed, especially at Dragon Con, that happens with a lot of conventions is that some people go simply to be seen in their costume and to see others in costume And that's cosplay. And that is increasingly important. And some people go to conventions for nothing else other than that. And you know what? That's understandable. I've had a student the last couple of years that is into it. And having talked to her about how much time and effort and creativity goes into her wardrobe. I mean, it's an art form in and of itself. Totally. And they sometimes spend hours doing different photo shoots both within their own, whatever they're dressed as, like there might be a Star Wars universe photo opportunity in the atrium somewhere in the hotel, you know, and they all get together and and take photographs and pose for photographs. People will stop you in the hall and say, may I take your photo? And people will pose maybe even with people that have nothing to do. Sometimes the mashup is what's fun. You'll have a Darth Vader posing opposite a red shirt from Star Trek. Yeah. And certainly there's A little bit of competition, I think, because certainly the major characters from the different universes have more people cosplaying that character. So then it's almost whose is better. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it gets pretty weird. They'll do mashups or gender bent, like you could do a gender flipped Sherlock or you could do a pink Boba Fett bounty hunter. You know, there's all kinds of different permutations of cosplay and everyone tries to one up each other in creativity, but at the same time, it's not necessarily competitive. Everyone appreciates even the most amateur of efforts in cosplay. And of course, that's part of the fun of just the spectacle of the convention as you're walking from Q and A to the autograph room or whatever else you're, you're there for. Right now, obviously through the magic of the internet and YouTube, we've gotten to see a lot of the cast Q and A's on stage and and the videos are getting better. And in fact, some of the networks provide their own feed to YouTube and they're very high quality. A lot are just filmed on a smartphone. And you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, the chance to see preview episodes and clips from upcoming seasons. Oh, yes. And that's a huge part of San Diego Comic-Con, where they have preview night specifically for networks to preview some of their new content. And I know there was an article recently that shared how 
big the Warner Brothers lineup was, where they're not only doing like 13 or 14 of their returning shows, but eight new shows in the fall, they will be previewing the pilot episodes at Comic-Con this year in San Diego. And, you know, one of the things that's always amazed me is that when you watch the amateur video footage of these panels, that when it comes time for the actual airing of the clip, the people cut it out. And I know that they say, we don't want you taping during this time. And I guess people shut their phone off, but I can't believe they all do. No, in fact, that's part of the big controversy with sharing those exclusive clips is that it ends up getting released in a very low quality format, like on someone's smartphone. And the studio is irate, supposedly, because they don't want that to be the representation. And so then they have to release the exclusive clip to the public just so that they are represented well by that clip rather than some amateur version of yeah, it. Yeah, and that's terrible for people like me. <laughs> and I don't know what to think about that. Like, are the studios aware that that's going to happen and just sort of play along with it as a way to get publicity, even the negative publicity that might be associated with the outrage that they have surrounding it? Or is it a strategic move? Well, how can they not be aware that it's going to happen? And then I guess I would argue that, okay, if I get to see it a day or two later in a high def version on YouTube, you were still first. Yeah. <laughs> you still saw it two days before I did. So what's the problem? Yeah, I agree. And I think that they're probably not going to slow down with the previews because of that. It might be the exclusivity that might be extended only to the press, perhaps. But other than that, I think it's going to continue as is. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really intrigues me, if I ever actually leave my house and go to one of these conventions, <laughs> would be to sit in and listen to the expert panel discussions in all sorts of specific areas. I mean, certainly at San Diego, they generally have a showrunners panel where you get a bunch of well-known showrunners that sit around and talk about you know, all the different vagaries of what entails to put on a show. You know, a couple that I just jotted down from last year, the Buffy effect, teen heroines then and now, Comic-Con Film School 101 pre-production and screenwriting, so that a lot of people that attend these cons are going for those reasons as well, to sit in on these these panel discussions and really try to learn something. Yeah, it's almost like an academic lecture that just happens to be about cool stuff, a television related topic. Exactly. And there are ones that are run by fans as well. I participate in a lot of fan panels at DragonCon that might be fairly unique to that convention, but I'm sure they have them elsewhere where it's just a bunch of fans talking about a show or a concept or a theme or something like that. So those are fun to interact with too, because of course the people in the audience can ask questions and participate in the discussion just like they would at a Q and a panel for the celebrities where they have to stand up at the microphone and ask their questions. All right. Well, you know, we've been talking about what conventions give to the fans and obviously it is about the fans, but it also does something for the celebrities. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, it totally does. And it varies. Like I mentioned earlier from celebrity to celebrity, especially if you're A-list or D-list, as some of the folks who maybe have shows that are off the air might be considered to be. But I came across an interesting article in the Chicago Tribune, wherein the CEO of Wizard Entertainment, 
who puts on some of these conventions, Garib Seamus is his name. He said, each of the celebrities who attend these things have their own reason. Some go convention to convention. Some don't have to work and just do it to keep their names out there. Some want to reconnect with a friend and some do need to make a living. And so there are people who use the convention circuit as a major source of income. Yeah. I mean, one show you mentioned off the air shows, a show like Firefly, they regularly do the convention circuit, including Nathan Fillion, all the while he was starring in Castle, and they draw huge crowds. Oh, yeah. Well, he would definitely be someone that I can guarantee would have a long line at any convention he intended. But there are certain people who show up at a lot of conventions, in fact, perhaps risking a little bit of oversaturation in some cases. And I know a good example of that was uh, mentioned in the article that I cited earlier, Lou Ferrigno, who apparently shows up a lot of conventions and has become a fixture such that people who may have seen him at a previous year's convention see him again. And then you're just like, Oh, well it's, it's Lou. Of course he's here. And a lot of the celebrities that are from shows that have been off the air for a while also fall into that category. And you see them sitting at their autograph table with no line, but apparently they still make enough to make it worth their while. Yeah. Now, for a long time, I was involved in sports collectibles, although I never really got into collecting autographs. But I certainly was aware of the the basic tenet that guys that never signed or signed rarely were more desirable. And you might say, well, duh, (laughs) of course. And, And I think that's kind of what we're getting at here is that those that make themselves available all the time, well, you know, the reason nobody was in line at Lou Ferrigno's, they'd all gotten his autograph last time. Exactly. And it's a question of how often do you come and how often do you go to the same conventions year to year? And uh, a good example of that also would be Erin Gray from Buck Rogers. She actually owns a company called Heroes for Hire that specifically hires out celebrities to conventions. And so she herself, as a result, comes to these conventions a lot herself. Well, so she's actually running the convention circuit as a sci-fi television star of sorts from a bygone era. But at the same time, she's made a living out of it by hiring other people out and making a business from that. Right. And I was explaining to my wife that you have some shows, well, a lot of the shows that that we're talking about here, sci-fi, genre, television, that it doesn't even have to be one of the main cast. It can be somebody that appeared in one episode, yeah, but but was sort of iconic. I, don't, I know that's probably the wrong use of the word, but I think you know what I mean, that, that their character in that one episode was so important that every fan of that show knows that person. And wants to see him or get their autograph. And who knows how much networking within the industry that people are doing. Like, I see a lot of voice actors at these shows where you wouldn't recognize their face, but you might recognize their voice from an animated series or from an anime that's been translated from Japanese to English. And those folks might get work by virtue of interacting with other folks in the television world. Yeah. Now, you know, we've we've mentioned 
fan panels. We've mentioned the show panels. And, and obviously, one of the big sells of San Diego Comic-Con is that the networks, the individual shows are there. They have their scheduled panel. They're up there for their 50 minutes or an hour, whatever it, it happens to be. And, and again, depending on how big the show is, how big a room you get at San Diego. But regardless, it's going to end up on YouTube. Yeah. And I, I think that can only be good for the industry. Uh, how can it be bad? Not to mention it can be good for the conventions when people see who's coming to them and maybe they'll start attending too. I feel like the attendance at these conventions grows every single year. I mean, San Diego Comic-Con is capped at uh, 130,000, but you know, some of them are still expanding from convention center to hotel to more hotels to more hotels and so on. Right. Now, you mentioned San Diego. I, I just want to kind of a, give a brief history of San Diego Comic-Con because, again, that is first and foremost. I don't know how we can say anything different with a straight face. <laughs> uh, began in 1970 when a group of comic, movie, and sci-fi fans got together and put on the first comic book convention in Southern Cal. And it started as a one-day mini-con called San Diego's Golden State Comic Mini-Con March of 1970, and the idea was to make some money to perhaps put on a more elaborate convention. Well, this first one drew about 100 attendees. They raised some funds, generated some interest, and that led to the three-day San Diego Comic-Con, which at the time was called San Diego's Golden State Comic-Con, August 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1970 at the U.S. Grant Hotel. Ray Bradbury, Jack Kirby were there. This time they had over 300 attendees packed into the hotel's basement. And when I used to do the sports convention circuit, uh, and that's probably part of what's turned me off. It, it, it was just like, really, it was literally like cattle yeah. <laughs> going through some of these places because they were trying to pay as little as possible to host. And they didn't seem to be interested in making it convenient, comfortable for fans. Now, we've talked about the opportunity for fans to pick up merchandise. Well, they've got an exhibit hall, 460,000 square feet yeah. in, in its current incarnation. So if you can't find it to buy there, <laughs> you don't need it. Yep. The all-important dealer's room. The first conventions I went to were anime conventions with my stepdaughter. And she spent a majority of her time when she was 12, 13 years old in the dealer's room trying to decide what she should buy with her precious allowance. <laughs> yes, yeah. And obviously, there's a lot there. Comics, you mentioned anime, art shows, portfolio reviews. I mean, there's a lot there. And the opportunities are there. It's not easy at San Diego, that's for sure, yeah. because it is so professionally run. From things I've read, from clips I've seen, sometimes, you know, the stars want to get out there and just be a fan like everybody else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sort of wandering the convention floor in cosplay incognito. That happens sometimes as well. So, yeah. But I think it's interesting that it's still called Comic-Con because the roots are from the comics, even though now it has gone off into all branches of fandom and geekery, such as TV and movies and books and everything else. Yeah. All right. Now, the other major con that we mentioned is, of course, Dragon Con. And I think it's fair to say for fans, by fans, right? Oh, yeah. Completely volunteer run. 
and uh, this is held in Atlanta each Labor Day, at least the three, four years you've been attending, it's been Labor Day, so I assume that's when it always is. Yes. And it's really become a must-attend experience for fans on the East Coast because, look, let's face it, it's difficult to get out to California. It's expensive to get out to California. Everything costs more out in California. But make no mistake, the people who come to Atlanta come from all corners of the globe. <laughs> oh, sure they do. But, yeah. but it, it certainly makes it easier for people like you to get down there. So what kind of numbers are we talking about at oh, Dragon Con? It, it grows every year. I believe they were up to 60,000, 70,000 uh, because they are not in a convention center, but rather a series of host hotels in downtown. They just keep taking over more hotels as the years go by. And that's part of the fun of it is being able to wander around downtown Atlanta and not be in some isolated convention center next to the airport where there's nothing of the local culture around you. So, yeah, that's a big part of the appeal for me. And like I said, the fact that there are fan run panels, not just celebrity Q&As, and the fact that their autograph room is so friendly for just being able to walk up to folks and talk to them without even purchasing anything. Okay. Now, you know, similarly to San Diego, four friends got together in 1987 to combine their love of sci-fi, gaming, and comics into one convention instead of the specialization that had pretty much been in vogue up to that point outside of San Diego. 1,200 fans turned out to meet sci-fi luminaries Michael Moorcock, Robert Asprin, gaming royalty Richard Garriott, and by 2000... 10,000 fans were attending the con, which had by now absorbed the world of cosplay as well, which you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. In fact, it has basically become the pinnacle, I think, for cosplay, uh, even above San Diego Comic-Con to a certain extent, because it is such a fan-centered rather than industry-centered convention. Right. And you mentioned it seems like it's, it's a lot more relaxed here, that you're a lot more likely to actually run into... Yes. One of the actors from a show. Right. Because they're not being rushed about from event to event in many cases. So there are specific times set aside for them to be in what's called the walk of fame, where you can just wander around and, you know, just catch a glimpse of them, even if you are too shy to walk up to them. So, yeah, that's a that's a big draw. And I'm not sure that that would necessarily make everyone's list of the big conventions. It's just the largest fan run fan or volunteer run conventions that I think it needs to make the list. But what's interesting is that there are many entertainment companies such as wizard as, as that we mentioned that run several different outfits. And one of the companies that does that is fan expo, which is in Toronto as its main home base. But fan expo is in Vancouver. It's in Dallas. It's in a lot of different cities and they are all run by the same company such that, it's been branching out now to even smaller markets. And of course, because it is Canada, where a lot of this genre television is filmed, of course, they would have their own conventions as well. Right. And you, of course, had a great experience at Fan Expo with the Continuum crew. That was my yeah first convention that I'd been to, fan convention anyway. And that one began in 1995. So that is somewhere in the middle between the San Diego Comic-Cons and the more modern ones. But you know what a latecomer newsmaker convention is, is New York Comic-Con, which began in 2006. Now, this one's not affiliated in any way with San Diego Comic-Con. 
and it's actually become the largest attended convention in the country as of 2014 when it surpassed 150k fans showing up and now more and more this has become the east coast place to break news about you know a renewal let's say or some news that's coming out about a new show or something like that so new york comic-con the latest player on the scene has really grown substantially well there's a lot out there to do if you're a fan if you're willing to travel and if you're willing to part with a few of your dollars and if you're willing to endure the massive numbers of people that haven't bathed in a while (laughs) it's really a cattle call that's for sure but we love it and celebrities love it and it's become part of the geek culture that has just blown up in the past decade so great to see that and i'm really looking forward to going to dragon con again this year but let's move on to our show discussion and dave what do you talk about i don't think we've discussed what we're talking about in any great detail so what do you got for us today well i'm going to talk about penny dreadful and it's with a heavy heart that i talk about penny dreadful because when i thought about this a few weeks ago i thought i would be talking about the season three finale instead i'm talking about the series finale Yeah, that's a shame. That news came out since we were discussing what topics we were going to be sharing on this podcast. So you didn't know that when you put it on the list. Right. But I think it's such an important show that clearly a lot of people were either not aware of or were aware of it, but didn't realize what it really entailed. So I just want to talk about it for a little bit. The, as it turns out, series finale aired June 19th. And the Showtime series just completed its three-season run, having produced 27 episodes. So it's a show that you can binge, and it's certainly doable. Nine-episode seasons, nothing should stop you there. Exactly. But really what happened was, you know, the fandom was just really put in this state of disbelief because this show, I mean, certainly it was critically well-received. The numbers were not great, but but again, numbers on Showtime, HBO, I mean, outside of a show like Game of Thrones, it, it's difficult to really get an accurate read on how many people are watching the show. And does it matter as much since it's a pay channel? <laughs> exactly. But let, let's take a look at what the show is. And let's take a bunch of literary characters generally associated with the horror field, bring them together in 19th century London and explore their origin stories. Now this premise, I know on the one hand sounds like a recipe for disaster, but creator (laughs) John Logan has really woven together these iconic Gothic characters from the 19th century, including Dorian Gray, Victor Frankenstein, Dracula, Satan, who I suppose transcends eras. (laughs) And we even get to the 19th century Wild West in America. Now, again, I know this sounds totally convoluted, but trust me, it's not. Well, this is also the era of Once Upon a Time when you can do storybook character mashups. Absolutely. And not that it's anything like that show. (laughs) No, 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 exactly. It is a dark show. There is no question. Sometimes it is just so oppressive, it's difficult to watch. But on the one hand... That's what makes it so compelling. But most compelling of all is star Eva Green's portrayal of Vanessa Ives. And look, there are a lot of outstanding actresses out there currently. 
And I think Eva Green is one of the most overlooked of all. And her performance in Penny Dreadful. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Oh, it's just astounding the breadth and the depth of the character that she plays. Also among the main cast of characters, Malcolm Murray, played by Timothy Dalton, James Bond, for goodness sakes, and (laughs) even a Time Lord in Doctor Who. Ethan Chandler, played by Josh Hartnett, and he's kind of a wolf shifter in, in this story. We see Dr. Victor Frankenstein, played by Harry Treadaway. And the interesting thing in season three is that they do what a lot of shows are afraid to do, and I understand this, is they split their characters up geographically so that you've got some of them in the United States and some of them are still in England. But at the heart of the show is this focus on evil and Vanessa's belief that God has abandoned her in her time of need. And the story really focuses around her relationship with God and don't misunderstand me. It's not a religious show. It's it's not that, but it's just this tortured character that somehow has attracted evil and it's her struggle to fight it off. And in the end, it's, you know, I won't reveal the ending, but it is uh, pretty poignant at the end. Does it have a proper ending with the uh, wrap up? Well, yes. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> We'd have to quibble about the definition of proper, I suppose. Yeah, does it ever really have a satisfying ending? Yeah. Now, we also see as one of the main characters, Billy Piper, who plays Lily Frankenstein, who was made to give the creature a mate. But she turns out to be this woman totally ahead of her time, given literally a second chance at life. She decides to make the most of it essentially by working for women's rights which is really interesting. And again, we know Billy Piper from Doctor Who in 2005, and she was the first companion in you know the reboot. Yeah, and always great to see her. And the show itself is something that definitely hit my radar, but I never really got back to it. So I'm excited to hear you talk about it because it's definitely that time of summer when I might be able to binge something like that. Right. Now, jumping ahead to the series finale, you asked, did it have a proper ending? And, you know, upon first viewing, it was somewhat satisfying in that Vanessa prays for forgiveness. And we know at this point that her death is the only thing that's going to bring her peace. And I'll just leave it at that. A lot's left unresolved, as you might imagine. A lot of characters left undeveloped or underdeveloped. We have an introduction of Dr. Jekyll. And then we do so little with him. But here's the problem. And we talked about this in a previous podcast. At the end of the day, John Logan and David Nevins, who is the president of Showtime, were proclaiming that they knew going in that season three would end the show. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm not buying it. No, that doesn't sound like the 
case when you describe all the different characters that were left unresolved. Yeah, and when I started really thinking about it, all right, you guys say you know that this is going to be it, yet the main character, Vanessa Ives, has about three minutes, literally, of screen time in the final two episodes. Wow. Huh? (laughs) That is strange. Yeah. One of the most haunted and haunting characters in television deserved so much more. And one of the things that I did find, and for all the good it's going to do at this point, the season (laughs) finale rose 300% when the Live Plus 7 numbers came out, going from a 0.1 to a 0.4 in the 18 to 49 demo. Well, that's a shame. Yeah, again, so many questions. Uh, Can anyone stop Dracula? I don't know. (laughs) Why were all the forces of darkness zeroing in on Vanessa? And that's kind of an interesting question, not to go off task too much, that's going on in Outcast, the show that I'm reviewing for Den of Geek at the moment. You know, why has all this evil centered around the main character? Don't know. An unresolved mystery. Uh, And then why did Vanessa not get more screen time? (laughs) Well, but it is still a binge-worthy series, notwithstanding, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Eva Green is just wonderful. She first came to my attention in, I'm not sure if it was Showtime or not, but the series called Camelot, where she played Morgan Le Fay. And she was just wonderful there as well, so... Hopefully, we'll see more of her in something else. Check it out. And in fact, you talked about strong female characters and and leads that really carry the show. And that's the show I'm talking about, too, has that same formula. And that's Killjoys on Sci-Fi, which has just made its return, along with its companion show, Dark Matter, on July 1st. And that's the show that I'm currently reviewing for Den of Geek is Dark Matter. Killjoys, for whatever reason, is not being reviewed by its season one reviewer. So I'm going to have to check in on that. Maybe I'll have to jump in on on that action as well. But I really love Killjoys and Dark Matter both, in fact. It's getting to the point now, Dave, and maybe you would agree with me on this. They're almost becoming inseparable from each other. You associate one with the other. Yeah, and I mentioned to you, is there any connection with their universes? I mean, look, I don't want to cross over just for the sake of crossing over. (laughs) But they could do it, I think. But they could do it. And oh my gosh, what a tremendous show. And it's not necessarily that they're competing with each other. They're very different shows. And of course, with The Expanse entering the arena earlier this year with its season one, the space dramas in general have really broadened the scope for sci-fi and brought back some fans who probably had given up on the network, not in small part due to Killjoys, I think, which has definitely got its really great highlights. It's run by Michelle Lavretta of Lost Girl fame, and she definitely has brought her own flavor to it. In fact, one thing I noticed with season two, when it returned at the beginning of the month, was that the opening credits changed. Did you see the opening credits? I did. (laughs) You know, my first reaction was, that's pretty awesome. And it's very much Michelle Lovretta. I mean, it practically was a twin for the Lost Girl opening credits. It it was. I'm still not sure, though. You know, I, I watched it again. I liked it less the second time. Well, it's weird because it basically connotes a lighter mood for the second season. And there's only been one episode as of this podcast that we're recording right now. 
but maybe they will have a lighter tone. I'm not sure. I mean, I think the selling point of Killjoys last season was that it appeared to be a character-driven show with this team of bounty hunters known as Killjoys run by Dutch, played by Hannah John Common, who is just a great actress, wonderful delivery, wonderful character that has a mysterious background that's uncovered as the season progresses in season one. She's initially teamed up with Johnny, played by Aaron Ashmore, and then eventually, once they rescue him from him himself, really, Johnny's brother, Davin, joins them, and Davin's played by Luke McFarlane. And it's a great ensemble cast besides just those three. But what's really cool is that the episodes seem to be fairly self-contained in season one, and then about halfway through, they started to become interrelated, and little details from episode two or episode four that you might've thought was fairly immaterial suddenly sprung back and formed a larger picture across the entire mythology for the show. So that by the time the season finale rolled around, it all tied together and it was like, Whoa, even these tiny little one-offs that showed up earlier turned out to be very relevant for an ongoing conspiracy. The conspiracy itself, of course, taking place in this really cool concept called the quad where it's like this planetary system or really a planet with moons clustered very close together, each with its own civilization and and life that can take place on it or not, as is the case with um, Arkin. But even that has, (laughs) you know, the home of red 17 is on Arkin. So a lifeless moon like that can even harbor a, a separate, culture. And it really is a diversity of cultures, rich to poor, religious, all kinds of different elements are brought into to make it a really, really rich tapestry. Right. And they jumped right back into those story arcs in the season two premiere, which was really good. But, you know, you mentioned a lighter touch. I mean, I really hope they don't go that way. Me too, actually. (laughs) I I mean, I like the fact that it is a relatively dark show, but you've got three characters who just make such a good team. The dynamic interplay between all of them is just wonderful. Each in their own right is a smart ass. Yeah. <laughs> and any lightness you need can be achieved that way with just a comment, with just a glance. And they do that so well. Oh, true. And, and the whole idea of, working for a company that hires them out as very principled bounty hunters. These are not, you know, your Boba Fett's. These are, these are basically very principled. The warrant is all is the phrase they always use. And they have very strict rules governing their activities. And it's kind of separate from the politics of the rich planet and the poor planet and, and everything else that's wrapped up in the quad. But that being said, the rack, as it's known, the company that they work for, does have a very deep conspiracy happening uh, that's centered around a great villain who's known as Klein, who appears to be invulnerable to a certain extent because he is a level six killjoy and all that that entails. I mean, it really has so many possibilities for exploration. What does a level six mean? What is really behind the rack and what's really behind what's going on with red 17 on Arkin has still yet to be explored. And that's not even taking into account the backstories of 
Johnny, Davin, and Dutch. And those really started getting uh, pretty deep by the end of season one. Yeah, I mean, not to mention the backstory of Dutch and Klein. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest storyline that is unfolding and the most interesting. But there are even minor characters who are starting to become known as people who have histories that that might become more in the forefront, such as pre who was a bartender in season one and in the season two premiere is right in the thick of things and apparently has a criminal past. <laughs> right. And hopefully we'll see more of him. I love him. Yeah. 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 So we'll see. But, you know, you mentioned the the mystery surrounding what it means to be level six. It's almost as if there's a certain immortality. Yeah. Associated with being level six. And of course, Davin's rejection of becoming a level six was such an integral part of the season premiere. So lots of stuff that, that can be explored with the season two. You can see that they have a completely unexpected direction going for it from the very beginning. And even in trying to rescue the folks from Old Town that are still there, including Potter and Alvis, who are a couple of other characters that are part of the ensemble cast that have really made it a really great show to watch for the main cast as well as the supporting characters. Now, you mentioned the fact that Killjoys, Dark Matter have really become inextricably linked. One appears at nine, the other airs at 10, back to back Friday nights. I think that's genius on the part of sci-fi. And it doesn't always work. I mean, they have no reason to be joined at the hip, but they've become associated positively in that sense. Such that as you'll hear in our interview that we're about to share with Joseph Malazzi from Dark Matter, he's even supporting the other show. You know, it's, it's a block that people can really buy into and sit down for on a Friday night. And the ratings have held steady where the ratings have been declining for a lot of shows, not just on sci-fi, but across all networks. And I mean, they took a little dip for the season two premiere, but certainly still in respectable territory for sci-fi shows. But speaking of that block of shows, and certainly uh, Dark Matter has a whole other discussion topic we could have (laughs) explored, we have to uh, share with you this great interview that we had with the showrunner for Dark Matter and the process that went into making that show and the direction that it's headed in this new season. And if you're not aware, Joseph Malazzi is an executive producer from one of the juggernauts of science fiction, which is the Stargate franchise. Uh, Going back to Stargate SG-1, he was part of Stargate Atlantis, a big part of that show, and even Stargate Universe, the short-lived Stargate Universe. But he's taken that space drama credibility and brought it here to Dark Matter. And it's just really taking out a great new start for season two. And I can't wait to see how it unfolds. But here's our chat that we had with Joseph Malazzi last week. We're very pleased to welcome today the showrunner, executive producer, and creator of Dark Matter, Joseph Malazzi, who is back for another season. The first episode just aired on July 1st. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Joseph Malazzi. Thank you for having me. We're really enjoying the season so far. It's got a real different flavor to it, and I'm really liking it with everyone having sort of a different storyline separate from the Raza. But the development of this show goes back years to when you were just finishing up with Stargate. Is season two entering new territory from those days of planning, or was the direction known this far in way back then even? 
Um, actually, even further back, actually, I uh, created the series, actually started to create the series, develop it way back when I was working on Stargate Atlantis, which was 2007, I would say. And, you know, the plan was to roll into Dark Matter once Stargate ended, but the only problem was that Stargate kept on getting picked up. So as a result, <laughs> I had a lot of time to really flesh out the characters and the backstory, so much so that, uh, you know, when we, we gathered for that first season, once we got, you know, Jay Firestone, who's the president of Prodigy Pictures, gave us a call and said, hey, you know, we got picked up, assembled the writer's room. It was my uh, co-creator and longtime uh, writing and producing partner, Paul Mully, myself and Martin Garrow, who uh, we knew from way back when we worked together on Stargate and who now runs a show called Blindspot for NBC. A little show. We got together. <laughs> a, little, a little show, yeah. <laughs> and I went in and I basically just knew exactly what, what I wanted to do for that first season. I knew all the beats for the stories I wanted to tell. And we sat down and we ended up breaking the entire season over the course of about two and a half weeks, which is great. I have a game plan. You know, I'm approaching each season like an installment in a book series. So each season will have a beginning, middle, and end. Each season will have a kind of a different feel, a different focus. Season one was very much a slow burn as we learned about these characters at the same time as they sort of uh, embarked on this journey of self-discovery, if you will. And it was very micro. It was very much about the ship and the characters and not that much about the big picture, the, the the universe as it exists in that far future. And it opens with these characters discovering that they're terrible, terrible people, or they were in their past, they were mercenaries and criminals, and it ends with them going to jail. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of the framework for season one. And season two, totally very different. Um, and we will still be discovering about our characters' past, but It'll be very much about them going out and interacting with the world and build on what we've established so far, but also find out about the corporations and, and, and the role the GA plays in trying to maintain order. And the story is a little more action-driven, a little off the wall, if you will. <laughs> and basically very, very sci-fi there. You know, we introduced, obviously, I mean, it's a sci-fi show, and we had plenty of sci-fi elements in season one, but season two, we really build on that as well. Okay. Now, the season two premiere is directed by Amanda Tapping, who you worked with in the Stargate franchise, of course. And, and certainly on the one hand, I'd love to hear what you have to say about the unique qualities that she brings to the show as a director and whether or not we'll be seeing her again behind the camera and maybe even in front of it. But I'm really curious to know, given her status in the sci-fi fandom and among critics, does the cast recognize how big a deal it is to have her direct? Oh yeah, the cast definitely uh, realizes she is sci-fi royalty, and and you know, I'm really thrilled to have her on the show. I mean, basically, you know, I worked with her on Stargate, and she was a delight to work with. Very professional, very incredibly talented, hugely talented, and and just you know, delightful to work with. Not just writer producer standpoint. I mean, the, the cast will always be nice to the writer producers, but I mean, the crew really loved her on Stargate, and so we all went our separate ways after Stargate, and she had started to build a career or a second career as a director and I'd heard a lot of good things. So when the opportunity came to do my own show, she was really at the top of the list of, of directors we wanted to work with. And so she came in and directed episode four of season one. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about Amanda, besides the fact that obviously she is, well, I mean, I say obviously because <laughs> I've seen her work. Yeah, she's a terrific director as an actress. She's able to connect with the cast and sort of get the most out of them in terms of performances. And, and it, it was really 
a great experience in season one. So when season two rolled around, I, I, you know, I made sure to give her a call and, and she's first up the season. So you know, once again, uh, another great, great, great experience. A great way to start the season. And last season, though, was all about identity, making a statement about what makes a person who they are. Yes. And so I'm wondering, does the show continue with that theme or is there a different way that you would characterize this season thematically now that some of the numbered characters are actually being referred to by name? Yeah, no, the show is ultimately about the search for redemption as as we track sort of the individual journeys of these actually seven characters and the idea of, you know, are we born bad? Are we products of our environment? And it's not a simple answer. In fact, actually, I think you'll get different answers depending on um, whose journey you happen to be following. So that will still remain, the, the, the idea of identity will still remain very much at the heart of the show. And even though, as I said, season two tonally will be different, a little more action-driven, a little more big picture than season one, the themes we established in season one will still be very much the heart of the show. And that's sort of the beauty of the original premise is that in their own minds, they are starting with a clean slate. And you you mentioned that it's a search for redemption. And as they learn about themselves, now they have to face that. Exactly. Exactly. And then the repercussions of, of, the lives that they led. I mean, it's very, well, I wouldn't say easy, but I mean, one of the easiest aspects of, of redemption is making that decision to say, okay, I'm going to start over. Uh, I'm not going to be the person I was, but there are people from your past who are not going to be quite so forgiving, if you will. And I'm not just talking about the GA, the Galactic Authority, or potential rivals, but essentially the people you cross, your, your former victims, telling them, hey, we're completely different people now, is is easier said than done. Yeah, it's like the uh, the guys in prison that are coming after three and saying, you owe me money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, hey, I wish I knew where the money was, but <laughs> exactly. Right. Now, employing the twin character narrative can often prove problematic, especially when one of the twins is killed. Do you have any concerns about Jace Corso offing Derek Moss, leaving the evil twin behind, presumably to wreak havoc? Uh, presumably, yes. Ah, no, actually, no qualms at all. I mean, I, you know, they're two incredibly different characters, two very different characters. So, you know, one gave us those story opportunities that it's an opportunity for Corso to step into the fore and, and give us a completely different set of uh, story opportunities. I can't wait to see how that plays out. But getting into the nitty gritty a little bit with the yeah. prison plotline, two, three, and four find themselves on a prison moon at the start of the season with all of the dynamics that go along with a sort of a corrupt prison culture and an escape plan, which is always fun. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the recurring characters we'll be meeting in this particular story arc? Because there are some really cool characters that were introduced in the premiere. Sure. I mean, there are a bunch. I mean, we introduced the character of Nix Harper, who is a longtime inmate in that basically she's in and out of the system through much of her life. And, and, you know, in the very first scene when she's introduced, you can see that sort of the convicts are very wary of her. There are three guys who, who are going to uh, cut three up. And then when she shows up, a single individual, they immediately back off. And then she proceeds to beat the crap out of three and then fight two to a standstill, which really is an amazing accomplishment when you consider two is a bioengineered being. 
So how the hell is, is <laughs> Nyx able to fight her to a standstill? Well, we're going to find that on, later in season two. There's a character of Devin, who is uh, a medic, kind of a you know handsome, a pretty boy. <laughs> uh, we don't we learn much about him in, in the first episode, but he's another guy whose baby doll looks belie kind of a dark past, which we will also explore. In. And then there's prison boss Eric Nero, played by Mike Dopid, who is a... Uh, Long-time Stargate veteran. In fact, I think I've, I've cast Mike in pretty much every show I've ever done, <laughs> from uh, Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, uh, Stargate Universe, Transporter, and uh, Dark Matter. And uh, he plays a prison boss who very much likes the status quo, You know, enjoys a certain privileges for maintaining that status quo in the prison. And of course, when our gang comes in and starts just rocking the boat, he doesn't take it very well. So he's another character major character to watch, to watch out for. So those three uh, in particular, they're introduced in, in episode one, and we'll be seeing more of them as uh, the second season progresses. Wow, that sounds awesome. Now, over the past decade, sci-fi fans have been inundated with just dozens of dystopian and post-apocalyptic stories. And while that's all well and good, it's really nice to see a resurgence in space fiction. So what is it that you like about writing stories for characters that spend the bulk of their existence on a spaceship or on some distant planet? You know, it, it's kind of a, a lessons I learned or lesson I learned on, on Stargate, you know, whether it was the SG-1 team heading off on their adventures from the SGC or the Atlantis team and their home base in Atlantis or the crew of the Destiny Audiences always tune in, you know, they enjoy tuning in to visit with our extended family. And, and that's essentially what our crew is, is they're an extended family of sorts. And the ship is a character of sorts as well in that, you know, it's almost like a home away from home. And, you know, I just love, I mean, I grew up with the original Star Trek. And I just love that sense of community, that kind of familial bonds that connect our characters, and that's sort of what I wanted to capture in, in Dark Matter, that idea that uh, despite their differences, they're still very much almost like a, you know, there's a sense of camaraderie in the sense that they're almost like a second family. And can you talk a little bit about uh, another guest role that's popping up? Very excited to see her, uh, Franca Potente. I'm not sure how to say her last yes. name there. From Run, Lola, yes, Run. Yes. What is what is her character all about? <laughs> Well, she makes her first appearance at the end of uh, episode one as uh, Chief Inspector Shattuck, the uh, Galactic Authority Serious Crimes Division. And she is there to interview the crew and actually more, you know, interrogate them, really. And, you know, we find it very quickly in the first episode that there's something not quite right here. I mean, they go into the prison and you think, well, I mean, you know, they're going to go, they're in prison, they're going to basically go on trial and, and, potentially be sent away for who knows how long. But it's very clear that someone is kind of pulling the strings and someone is seemingly not interested in them going to trial. Someone is interested in making sure that basically they never stand trial, like they never live to stand trial. Who that is, is a bit of a mystery. And Shattuck comes in and, and she represents the GA and she's sort of a different force. And she's the one who's kind of interested in finding out about their past and specifically about an incident involving a MIKA research facility that was destroyed uh, back in episode 11 of last season. So, you know, a lot of the elements that we set up last season begin to pay off in a big way this season, one of which is that heist 
the destruction of the uh, BK Research Facility, the white hole bomb technology, and also the uh, key, the key card that uh, Five discovers early in season one that uh, her friends, she finds out that her friends were murdered for. She doesn't know what it is. You know, the Android says something about it being you know, potentially a, a key to um, interdimensional pocket space-time, whatever that is. <laughs> However, you know, whatever practical applications that could provide we'll be finding out in season two. You're reminding me about a lot of these things I forgot about. So this was a really great refresher. You should, you, you should, it's not too late to uh, rewatch it on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we have been known to do that. Um, now, you know, you mentioned early in the interview that you, you've got future seasons plotted out like books. So I'm curious to know your position on season finale cliffhangers and who makes the call on how a season ends. Um, at present, I make the call along with, uh, Paul Mully, who's my co-creator and, uh, Jay Firestone, who's the president of, uh, Prodigy Pictures. I mean, like I said, I'm approaching each season, like the installment in the book series, the beginning and middle and end. And certainly we set up a lot of questions. We answered a, a number of questions, but we ended season one with a cliffhanger. But in my mind, I thought it was kind of fitting that, as I said, they find out at the beginning of the season that they're criminals and rightly or wrongly at the end of the season, they end up being hauled off to prison to answer for their crimes. I'm glad we got a second season so we can continue to answer some of the questions we set up. But, you know, if we hadn't gotten a second season, I find that ending almost fitting. So in a similar vein, season two will have a beginning, middle and an end where we're going to be answering a lot of questions. And we're going to be asking a bunch of questions as well, and, and not all of them are going to be answered by the end of the season. So season two is going to be much like season one, lots of twists and turns, shocks and surprises. But I think the shocks and surprises are going to be even bigger and the revelations are going to be even bigger this season. All right. Well, buckle up, everyone, because exactly. this season is just getting started and it's always great to have Dark Matter and Killjoys, for that matter, as part of our yeah. summer enjoyment. A great one-two punch. <laughs> it's the space one-two punch. Bye-bye, Friday. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Mr. Malazzi, and good luck with season two, and can't wait to see how all this unfolds. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And there, like you, like you heard there at the end, Dave, you mentioned watching that Killjoys Dark Matter block at 9 and 10 o'clock, and it really is something that I look forward to every week and dark matter with its really different flavor where they're not just confined to the ship anymore. Now they're all the characters are separated and have different plot lines going on. And I've really been enjoying that direction. So a great show and really a great guy to talk to about the creative process. Yep. A great interview. So we hope you enjoyed our discussion of conventions and the shows that we're watching along with the interview from Joseph Malazzi, but that's going to be it for this edition of sci-fi fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion, but you can keep that discussion going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. Make sure you check us out in August. We're not sure yet what we're going to be talking about, but that's going to be part of the beauty. Tune in and find out. And <laughs> that's right. In the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Plus, we do take suggestions for future discussion topics. Just email us at sci-fi-fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. 